This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Aaron Hastings, New Braunfels, Texas, August 2007. The Golden Age by Kenneth Graham. A Holiday. The masterful wind was up and out, shouting and chasing the lord of the morning. Poplars swayed and tossed with a roaring swish. Dead leaves sprang aloft and whirled into space, and all the clear-swept heaven seemed to thrill with sound like a great harp. It was one of the first awakenings of the year. The earth stretched herself, smiling in her sleep, and everything leapt and pulsed to the stir of the giant's movement. With us it was a whole holiday, the occasion a birthday, it matters not whose. Some one of us had had presents, and pretty conventional speeches, and had glowed with that sense of heroism which is no less sweet that nothing has been done to deserve it. But the holiday was for all, the rapture of awakening nature for all, the various outdoor joys of puddles and sun and hedge-breaking for all. Colt-like I ran through the meadows, frisking happy heels in the face of nature laughing responsive. Above the sky was bluest of the blue, wide pools left by the winter's floods flashed the color back, true and brilliant, and the soft air thrilled with the germinating touch that seemed to kindle something in my own small person, as well as in the rash primrose already lurking in sheltered haunts. Out into the brimming sun-bathed world I sped, free of lessons, free of discipline and correction for one day at least. My legs ran of themselves, and though I heard my name called faint and shrill behind, there was no stopping for me. It was only Harold, I concluded, and his legs, though shorter than mine, were good for a longer spurt than this. Then I heard it called again, but this time more faintly, with a pathetic break in the middle, and I pulled up short, recognizing Charlotte's plaintive note. She panted up anon, and dropped on the turf beside me. Neither had any desire for talk. The glow and the glory of existing on this perfect morning were satisfaction full and sufficient. "'Where's Harold?' I asked presently. "'Oh, he's just plain muffin-man as usual,' said Charlotte, with petulance. "'Fancy wanting to be a muffin-man on a whole holiday!' It was a strange craze, certainly, but Harold, who invented his own games and played them without assistance, always stuck staunchly to a new fad till he had worn it quite out. Just at present he was a muffin-man, and day and night he went through passages up and down staircases ringing a noiseless bell and offering phantom muffins to invisible wayfarers. It sounds a poor sort of sport, and yet, to pass along busy streets of your own building, forever ringing an imaginary bell and offering airy muffins of your own make to a bustling, thronging crowd of your own creation, there were points about the game, it cannot be denied, though it seemed scarce in harmony with this radiant windswept morning. "'And Edward, where is he?' I questioned again. "'He's coming along by the road,' said Charlotte. "'He'll be crouching in the ditch when we get there, and he's going to be a grizzly bear and spring out on us. Only you mustn't say I told you, cause it's to be a surprise.' "'All right,' I said magnanimously. "'Come on, and let's be surprised.' But I could not help feeling that on this day of days even a grizzly felt misplaced and common. Sure enough, an undeniable bear sprang out on us as we dropped into the road. Then ensued shrieks, growlings, revolver shots, and unrecorded heroisms, till Edward condescended at last to roll over and die, bulking large and grim, an unmitigated grizzly. It was an understood thing that whoever took upon himself to be a bear must eventually die, sooner or later, even if he were the eldest-born, else life would have been all strife and carnage, and the age of acorns would have displaced our hard-won civilization. 
This little affair concluded with satisfaction to all parties concerned. We rambled along the road, picking up the defaulting Harold, by the way, muffinless now, and in his right and social mind. "'What would you do?' asked Charlotte presently, the book of the moment always dominating her thoughts until it was sucked dry and cast aside. "'What would you do if you saw two lions in the road, one on each side, and you didn't know if they was loose or if they was chained up?' "'Do?' shouted Edward valiantly. "'I should—I should—I should—' His boastful accents died away into a mumble. Dunno what I should do. Shouldn't do anything, I observed after consideration, and really it would be difficult to arrive at a wiser conclusion. If it came to doing, remarked Harold, reflectively, the lions would do all the doing there was to do, wouldn't they? But if they was good lions, rejoined Charlotte, they would do as they would be done by. Ah, but how are you to know a good lion from a bad one? said Edward. The books don't tell you at all, and the lions ain't marked any different. "'Why, there aren't any good lions,' said Harold hastily. "'Oh, yes, there are, heaps and heaps,' contradicted Edward. "'Nearly all the lions in the story-books are good lions. "'There was Androcles's lion, and St. Jerome's lion, and—and—and and, and the lion and the unicorn.' "'He beat the unicorn,' observed Harold dubiously, all around the town. "'That proves he was a good lion,' cried Edward triumphantly. "'But the question is, how are you to tell him when you see him?' "'I should ask Martha.' said Harold, of the simple creed. Edward snorted contemptuously, then turned to Charlotte. "'Look here,' he said. "'Let's play at lions anyhow, and I'll run on to that corner and be a lion. I'll be two lions, one on each side of the road, and you'll come along, and you won't know whether I'm chained up or not, and that'll be the fun.' "'No, thank you,' said Charlotte firmly. "'You'll be chained up till I'm quite close to you, and then you'll be loose, and you'll tear me in pieces and make my frock all dirty, and perhaps you'll hurt me as well. I know your lions.' "'No, I won't. I swear I won't,' protested Edward. "'I'll be quite a new lion this time, something you can't even imagine.' And he raced off to his post. Charlotte hesitated. Then she went timidly on, at each step growing less Charlotte, the mummer of a minute, and more the anxious pilgrim of all time. The lion's wrath waxed terrible at her approach. His roaring filled the startled air. I waited till they were both thoroughly absorbed, and then I slipped through the hedge out of the trodden highway into the vacant meadow spaces. It was not that I was unsociable, nor that I knew Edward's lines to the point of satiety, but the passion and the call of the divine morning were high in my blood. Earth to earth, that was the frank note, the joyous summons of the day, and they could not but jar and seem artificial, these human discussions and pretenses, when boon nature, reticent no more, was singing that full-throated song of hers that thrills and claims control of every fibre. The air was wine, the moist earth-smell, wine, the lark's song, the wafts from the cow-shed at the top of the field, the pant and smoke of a distant train, all were wine, or song was it, or odour, this unity they all blended into. I had no words then to describe it, that earth effluence of which I was so conscious, nor indeed have I found words since. I ran sideways, shouting, I dug glad heels into the squelching soil, I splashed diamond showers from puddles with a stick, I hurled clods skywards at random, and presently I somehow found myself singing. The words were mere nonsense, irresponsible babble, the tune was an improvisation, a weary, unrhythmic thing of rise and fall, and yet it seemed to me a genuine utterance, and just at that moment the one thing fitting and right and perfect. Humanity would have rejected it with scorn, nature, everywhere singing in the same key, recognized and accepted it without a flicker of dissent. All the time the hardy wind was calling to me companionably from where he swung and bellowed in the treetops. 
"'Take me for guide to-day,' he seemed to plead. "'Other holidays you have tramped it in the track of the stolid, unswerving sun. "'A belated truant you have dragged a weary foot homeward "'with only a pale, expressionless moon for company. "'Today why not I, the trickster, the hypocrite? "'I, who whip round corners and bluster, relapse and evade, then rally and pursue. "'I can lead you the best and rarest dance of any, "'for I am the strong, capricious one, the lord of misrule, "'and I alone am irresponsible and unprincipled and obey no law.' and for me i was ready enough to fall in with the fellow's humour was not this a whole holiday so we sheered off together arm in arm so to speak and with fullest confidence i took the jigging thwartwise course my chainless pilot laid for me a whimsical comrade i found him ere he had done with me was it in jest or with some serious purpose of his own that he brought me plump upon a pair of lovers silent face to face or a discreet unwinking style as a rule this sort of thing struck me as the most pitiful tomfoolery two calves rubbing noses through a gate were natural and right and within the order of things but that human beings with salient interests and active pursuits beckoning them on from every side could thus well it was a thing to hurry past shame to face and think on no more but this morning everything I met seemed to be accounted for, and set in tune by that same magical touch in the air, and it was with a certain surprise that I found myself regarding these fatuous ones with kindliness instead of contempt, as I rambled by, unheeded of them. There was indeed some reconciling influence abroad which could bring the like antics into harmony with bud and growth and the frolic air. A puff on the right cheek from my willful companion sent me off at a fresh angle, and presently I came within sight of the village church, sitting solitary within its circle of elms. From forth the vestry window projected two small legs, gyrating, hungry for foothold, with larceny, not to say sacrilege, in their every wriggle, a godless sight for a supporter of the establishment. Though the rest was hidden, I knew the legs well enough. They were usually attached to the body of Bill Saunders, the peerless bad boy of the village. Bill's coveted booty, too, I could easily guess at that. It came from the vicar's store of biscuits, kept, as I knew, in a cupboard along with his official trappings. For a moment I hesitated. Then I passed on my way. I protest I was not on Bill's side, but then neither was I on the vicar's, and there was something in this immoral morning which seemed to say that perhaps, after all, Bill had as much right to the biscuits as the vicar, and would certainly enjoy them better, and anyhow it was a disputable point, no business of mine. Nature, who had accepted me for ally, cared little who had the world's biscuits, and assuredly was not going to let any friend of hers waste his time in playing policeman for society. He was tugging at me anew, my insistent guide, and I felt sure, as I rambled off in his wake, that he had more holiday matter to show me, and so indeed he had, and all of it was to the same lawless tune. Like a black pirate flag on the blue ocean of air, a hawk hung ominous, then, plummet-wise, dropped to the hedgerow whence there rose, thin and shrill, a piteous voice of squealing. By the time I got there, a whisk of feathers on the turf, like scattered playbills, was all that remained to tell of the tragedy just enacted. Yet nature smiled and sang on, pitiless, gay, impartial. To her, who took no sides, there was every bit as much to be said for the hawk as for the chaffinch. Both were her children, and she would show no preferences. Further on, a hedgehog lay dead athwart the path, nay, more than dead— decadent distinctly a sorry sight for one that had known the fellow in more bustling circumstances nature might at least have paused to shed one tear over this rough-jacketed little son of hers for his wasted aims his cancelled ambitions his whole career of usefulness cut suddenly short but not a bit of it jubilant as ever her song went babbling on and death in life and again life in death were its alternate burdens 
and looking around, and seeing the sheep-nibbled heels of turnips that dotted the ground, their hearts eaten out of them in frost-bound days now over and done, I seemed to discern faintly a something of the stern meaning in her valorous chant. My invisible companion was singing also, and seemed at times to be chuckling softly to himself, doubtless at thought of the strange new lessons he was teaching me, perhaps too at a special bit of waggishness he had still in store. For when at last he grew weary of such insignificant earth-bound company, he deserted me in a certain spot I knew, then dropped, subsided, and slunk away into nothingness. I raised my eyes, and before me, grim and lichened, stood the ancient whipping-post of the village, its sides fretted with the initials of a generation that scorned its mute lesson, but still clipped by the stout rusty shackles that had tethered the wrists of such of that generation's ancestors as, as had dared to mock at order and law. Had I been an infant stern, here was a grand chance for sentimental output. As things were, I could only hurry homewards, my moral tail well between my legs, with an uneasy feeling, as I glanced back over my shoulder, that there was more in this chance than met the eye. And outside our gate I found Charlotte, alone and crying. Edward, it seemed, had persuaded her to hide, in the full expectation of being duly found, and ecstatically pounced upon. Then he had caught sight of the butcher's cart, and, forgetting his obligations, had rushed off for a ride. Harold it further appeared greatly coveting tadpoles, and top-heavy with the eagerness of possession, had fallen into the pond. This in itself was nothing, but on attempting to sneak in by the back door, he had rendered up his duckweed bedabbled person into the hands of an ant, and had been promptly sent off to bed, and this, on a holiday, was very much. The moral of the whipping-post was working itself out and I was not in the least surprised when, on reaching home, I was seized upon, and accused of doing something I had never even thought of. And my frame of mind was such, that I could only wish most heartily that I had done it. End of A Holiday